following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So there's been a lot of talk in the past couple of weeks about what happens when um, Hollywood, which is the kind of derisive catch-all term we use for specific filmmakers sometimes, but when Hollywood takes on the stories of faith and, and puts them out in a, in a modern, modern big-budget film, is that a good thing for our story to be appropriated by a, by a Hollywood liberal? <laughs> um, <clears throat> is it uh, a bad thing <laughs> for our stories to be appropriated? And, uh, you know, what, does, what happens in the tone of the, of the church's subculture at times like this is sometimes discouraging to me. Um, very interesting to me, by the way, that the only people who are angry about this are Christians, not Jews. <laughs> and it's not actually our story primarily. <laughs> of course, it is our story. The whole thing has become our story, but... Um, we appropriated it for ourselves before Aronofsky appropriated it for himself, if you know what I mean. Anyway, um, regardless of how you feel about that, if you've kind of been on the, eh, I don't think it should happen side, or if you've been on the, what's the problem, it's just a movie side, or somewhere in between, I think we can all admit that there is a certain degree of cool factor when the uh, budgetary muscle of the Hollywood filmmaking machine is applied to a biblical story, like at least on a special effects level. Right, you have to say that this is pretty cool, and um, you know. Of course, I'm talking about Noah. If you if you didn't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the movie Noah. I've often wondered what um, what other stories in the Bible might be made more interesting if uh, if the Hollywood um, budgetary muscle were applied to them. And today's text from the Old Testament is one of the stories that I think is potentially could be the most interesting thing to see set um, into a big budget movie production. Um, Because sometimes, you know, Christians make films too, and that's great, but they just don't have the budget sometimes to pull off what what, uh, a director like Aronofsky could pull off. And so you you miss out on some of of the... uh, some of the intensity, if you will. So this, the, uh, the Old Testament reading today is from Ezekiel 37. And rather than read it straight to you and then try to expose it, I'm going to uh, just kind of touch on it and, and dance across it lightly as I talk about what's going on in this scene. So if you would like to follow along in your uh, red Bibles that are under the chairs and so forth, you can check it on page 704, or you can find Ezekiel 37 in your own Bible. But um, mostly I'm not going to be reading it along. I just, you, you might want to have it in front of you to, to check on a couple of things in a minute. So this is the story of how God took the prophet Ezekiel down into a valley and showed him an amazing vision, vivid graphic detail, um, what he intended to do with the people of Israel. And so... Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord came upon him and brought him down by the Spirit into the middle of a valley. And the valley was full of bones. Right. So something, think of the very kind of stark imagery 
that you might see in a movie, coming down into the valley and it's full of bones. And the Lord asks him, mortal, can these bones live? And uh, he answers very safely. I recommend this type of answer when God asks you a question. Lord, you know. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever answer questions when a teacher in school asks you a question, you try to come up with an answer that, that doesn't commit to anything one way or the other? <laughs> That's what Ezekiel's doing here. Oh, Lord God, you know. And then he says to them, prophesy to these bones. See, the typical model is for the Lord to speak to the prophet and say, prophesy to the people. In other words, prophesy doesn't always have to do with like fortune-telling future kind of stuff, but it does usually have to do with telling a group of people what is going to happen to them if they don't change their ways. That's what, that's what the Old Testament prophets generally do, is talk to the people of God and say, you're messing up in the following 18 ways, and here are 24 ways that God is going to destroy you if you don't repent, right? So, but rather than telling him to prophesy to the people, he actually says, prophesy to these bones in the valley and say to them, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. So he's telling Ezekiel, go talk to these bones and tell them, I'm going to put a body on you. All right? So this is getting weird. Okay? We would have to find the right director, I think, to cover this story properly. So Ezekiel says he prophesies the way that the Lord commanded him to do. And as he does, there's a noise. Now here's where we miss, we just read through the stuff so fast and we miss the imagery and the the, the multi-sensory experience. But there's a noise as these bones start to rattle. You can hear a, a really good quality Hollywood sound effects technician putting the sound of bones rattling together, right, as they start to, to jiggle to life and, and, and form into the shapes of bodies. The bones came together bone to bone. He says, Ezekiel, I looked and there were sinews on them and flesh and skin and muscle start to appear on these bones, right? This is graphic stuff. And so then there's these these fleshed out body things standing in this valley. No longer just bones, but fleshy body-shaped things standing there. And the Lord says, because Ezekiel notices that there's no breath in the bodies, the Lord says, now you've prophesied to the bones, now prophesy to the breath. And say to the breath, come from the four winds and breathe upon these slain bodies, these, these killed dead people that they may live. Ezekiel says, again, I prophesied as the Lord commanded me. And the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet. A vast multitude. Can you see it in the valley? The vast multitude of bodies that now have not only flesh but breath in them. Then the Lord explains to Ezekiel what he's seeing. He says, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. You see, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had been conquered by the Babylonians and sent into exile. Not only had they experienced violence and death in their community, 
not only had they experienced the shame of having been conquered, but they had been completely dislocated from the center of their religious observance, which is Jerusalem, and sent out. These people are not only disembodied, literally, some of them, but they're kind of like spiritually disembodied. They're detached from everything they understand. And what God says to Ezekiel is that these bones that have just taken on flesh and had breath poured into them, this is the whole house of Israel. These are the, these are the exiles that you're seeing. They've been saying our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, now do the actual work of the prophet and prophesy to the people and tell them that the Lord God says, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, which is a very Ezekiel phrase to use, as you know from other films. When I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O oh my people, see, this is a different ending to that sentence, isn't it? You will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up. O oh my people, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. So one of the reasons that I'm fascinated by this passage is there's a beautiful little piece of wordplay that happens here. I am not a Hebrew language scholar by any stretch, but I know just enough to be dangerous to myself. One of the things that is true in the Hebrew language is that there is one word that is used and translated as not only spirit, but as wind and as breath. The word is ruach in Hebrew. Spirit, breath, and wind. All English words that are translated from the same Hebrew word if you read this text in English, you see all three of those words used differently. But if you were to read it in Hebrew, you would see the same word used over and over again in different ways. So if you look, for example, at verse 1, that the hand of the Lord came on Ezekiel and he brought me out by the Spirit to set him down in this valley. This is the way that God works in him is by the Spirit, Ruach. And if you look at verse 5, when it's describing what the Lord wants to do. I will cause breath to enter you. Ruach. And verse 8. He looks and sees these bodies that have flesh and sinew and muscle, but they have no breath. Ruach. He says, prophesy to the breath. Come from the four winds. Ruach. And then at the very end... When things start to get a little bit happier, I will put my spirit within you, Ruach. You see how all these words are the same. The spirit that calls Ezekiel down into the valley is the word the first time. The breath that has blown into these bodies is the word the second time. The wind that is called up to go into the bodies is the word the third time. And then this promise at the end that the people of Israel will receive His Spirit. How vivid a demonstration of what it means to receive the Spirit of God did He give Ezekiel. (laughs) And we miss it somewhat in English, I think. I don't think you have to know the original languages to understand the Bible. Almost all the time you can get most of the picture in English, 
in translation. But in this case, I think there's so much um, interest and import added to this story when you know that linguistic thing. So I love the words. You know I'm a, a word nerd. Well, more of a word jock, really. But um, <laughs> I like words. Um, and I love imagery. This passage has them both. It's got wordplay and great imagery. So again, can you imagine a big-budget Hollywood-style filmmaker putting his cash and skill to this story? What would we see? Well, and here's where it may get a little weird. I think what we would see airs on AMC <laughs> Sunday nights. Right? It's Sunday night, right? I watch it on Netflix. I don't know. Almost all of you have seen at least a minute of, and some of you have seen every minute of, the TV show The Walking Dead, right? Yeah, some people are like, "Uh uh-uh, not me, no zombies. (laughs) This is, is this like the most popular show on cable television right now? I think it is by audience. If you've not seen it, you've certainly been exposed to the idea. And... um, you know, if, you, if you're not into zombie things, that's fine. I'm not necessarily either, although I have to confess, I do find that show kind of like addictive in a uh, candy sort of way. <laughs> like there's no nutritional value in this whatsoever, and I can't stop. <laughs> um, but if you're not into zombie shows and, and movies, let me give you Zombie 101, right? There's a, a body that can move around, and it's still dead, but it's kind of alive, and it's gross. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Josiah. Uh, The 10-year-old has given me the the proper terminology here, undead. Um, You're going to go far with that kind of knowledge, son. (laughs) Far, far down the path to RIT. So a zombie is this, this kind of embodiment of a human being, but it's not alive, and it's not healthy, and it's dangerous to the people around, right? Now, I'm not trying to make this comparison so that you'll think I'm hip, or, you know, if you're visiting today, you might come back next week to see what the edgy pastor will say next time. Believe me, I have no interest in that stuff. I actually think this is a really, really apt... Um, metaphor, analogy for what, what's been, I think, laid on my heart for this, these texts today. Because basically what happened in that valley is that God takes a massive pile of dry bones and animates it into zombies for a minute, right? I was going to get like a picture screen cap from The Walking Dead and put it on the screen, but then I remember, yeah, there's children in the room, I probably should skip that. But those of you who've seen it can picture it in your head, can you not? I think this is what Ezekiel was seeing en masse in that valley. These zombified bodies. But then what he does is something that you never see in a zombie film. He further animates these bodies into, into true, full life with breath and soul in them. And I think that this image might be really important for, for some of you today. Because the truth is, 
And I apologize if this sounds a little bit dramatic. But the truth is that some of you are spiritual zombies. You know, you were perhaps raised in the church. You obtained a certain measure of religious understanding and faith by osmosis. Or perhaps you had a very meaningful faith experience, but it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and it's just dry and dead for you right now. So you're not, you're not just a pile of dead bones, spiritually speaking. That would probably actually be a better place to start from, because at least then you would not be able to lie to yourself and say, look, I'm a real body. You've, you've taken on the form of a fully alive spiritual being, but you are just flesh hanging on bones. There is no breath in you. You're a spiritual zombie. You know, one of our other readings from the lectionary today is from Romans chapter 8. It starts in verse 6. <clears throat> and I'll just tell you ahead of time that, the, that what I said about Hebrew a minute ago, that the word ruach means breath and wind and spirit, the same thing is true in Greek. The word is pneuma. You think of like pneumatic tires or something like that. Air, breath, wind, spirit. Romans 8, 6. Paul says, To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're just a spiritual body, which is, I, I understand is a kind of a, you know, a, what's the word? Um, it's, it's a contradiction to say spiritual body, but let's go with it for a minute. If you're in that spiritual zombified state, you cannot please God. And he's saying to these Christians, remember, you are not just in the flesh. You are in the spirit, in the breath, in the wind since the Spirit of God dwells in you. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I think that Paul is giving the same story in the book of Romans in this part of it that we saw in Ezekiel 37. They're each doing it in their own way. Ezekiel is prone to these dramatic graphic visions, and Paul is prone to dry, spiritual, technical, theological language. (laughs) But they're saying the same thing. That you're dead in your body, and you can be and ought to be alive in your spirit. Either way, it's a reminder of our mortality. And it's a reminder of where our true life actually comes from. Those of us who observed Ash Wednesday together at the start of Lent received that stark reminder with ashes placed on our forehead. 
hearing the words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Someday you're just going to be a pile of bones in a valley. That's pretty somber. That is pretty dark. We would rather not dwell on that. The tulips are about to come up. But that's what Lent calls us to remember. Some of you are half alive spiritually. You have not fully received all of what God wants to give you. There's precedent for this kind of thing in the story of the early church, by the way. If you want to turn back a few pages to uh, Romans 19, you don't have to turn back. I'll just tell you what happens. But Paul passes through the interior regions, comes to Ephesus, and he finds some people who are termed disciples, some people who are followers of the way. And he asks them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And listen to what they say, these clueless, misguided Christians. No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he says, well, into what then were you baptized? Because, you know, certainly they would have been baptized. That's... See, what was happening here is the, 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 the Christian faith was beginning to spread throughout the region, and, and it had very little quality control, <laughs> right? The whole story was not always coming through. It's like a, a game of religious telephone being played. And Paul's going through and checking in with these people and saying, do you have the whole picture? How can I help you understand what you're actually a part of here? How were you baptized? What happened when you became Christians? And they say, we were baptized into John's baptism. This is kind of some New Testament inside baseball, but you may remember um, the story of John the Baptist baptizing people in the River Jordan, and he's baptizing them for repentance, baptizing Jewish people for repentance. And his purpose, he says, is to point the way to Jesus, the one who's coming after me. I'm not even, unwor- I'm not even worthy enough to tie his shoes. And these people, uh, he had, John had a, a very large following. These early Christians in this particular place in Ephesus were baptized in, into a Joannine, a John-like baptism for some reason. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them, which I think is an interesting little postscript. That's a lot of trouble for 12 people. I think that the analog here is people who were, who were raised in the church, perhaps, never took on faith fully for themselves, or took it on out of obligation, or because everybody else was doing it, or you had some moment in youth group where it really seemed like you were probably going to get in a car crash on the way home, and you just figured you'd cover your bases, <laughs> right? Because that's what we do to kids in youth group in the American church. <clears throat> Not this youth group, but. So in some sense, you were baptized into some other baptism, whether you were physically baptized or not. In some sense, you're, you're actually a spiritual exile. You're, you, you may be feeling like dry bones, like, why am I even here today? I am so sick of this coming in and going out and coming in and going out every week. It doesn't mean anything to me. Sometimes you may feel completely cut off and that you've lost hope. Well... I would suggest that maybe the problem is 
that you are a spiritual zombie, (laughs) that you have started the process of of God's regeneration. You're not just a pile of bones. You've been brought upright (laughs) in your soul. You've got some spiritual muscle draped over your bones, but you have not received the breath. You have not received the wind. You have not received the Spirit. Just as those believers in Ephesus had been baptized into John's baptism and had not received the Spirit. They were there. They were Christians. They were on board, but they were were ill-equipped for a, a life of true spiritual fruit. So are you, spiritually speaking, one of the walking dead? That's not the place you want to be. I don't want to give you any spoilers here, but really only two things happen with zombies. One is that they bite people and make more zombies. They infect everybody around them with whatever poison that particular director's world has caused zombies to be a part of. Or one of the good guys comes and catches them and interacts with their uh, cerebral cortex in a particular way. Right? (laughs) Not going to be too graphic about it. But the double tap, right? (laughs) And then they are zombies no more. (laughs) Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the fate of a zombie. You can make more zombies or you can... Right? But here's the good news. Pastors are supposed to convey good news, and I actually think that I have some. The good news is that we are resurrection people. (laughs) The good news from Ezekiel is that God is the one who breathes in life and takes these zombies in the other direction. (laughs) Gives them more life and more fullness. The good news, not pictured today, but a very important reading I'd encourage you to read on your own from John 11, the the gospel passage for today, is that, that the Son of God, Jesus, is the one who calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, raises him from the dead. The good news in Romans applies that to you and says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. So if you're sitting there today and feeling like a spiritual zombie, if you want God's spirit, his wind, his breath to fill your emptiness, to bring life to your bones, I'm going to ask you to do one simple thing in a minute. If you feel like a spiritual zombie and you want that breath of God, that spirit of God, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Now, it's pretty rare that I do this, that I ask for this kind of response. Um, And I don't know exactly why that is, to be honest with you. It just doesn't seem very me or very artisan, perhaps, uh, and I, I probably went to too many summer camps where preachers ask people to stand up after they were done preaching, and I guess I'm just overreacting to that. But I feel like today this is what I need to ask you to do. If you are um, feeling kind of spiritually half-animated and you want to receive the Holy Spirit, in a minute I'll ask you to stand. Remember that the bones rattled together and formed this body, this upright but breathless thing. I want you to take on that posture. And I also want you to do this because I, I know, just from, from knowing, 
that when you stand, when you engage your physical body into something that is happening in your heart and your mind, it brings it home and solidifies it and, and, and nails it to the wall somehow in a way that, that might not happen if you just sat there. And I don't know if anybody's going to take me up on this or not. I might have just a, a quiet moment of standing and looking at each other, or sitting and looking at each other, and that's okay. But I suspect there might be one or two people in the room who are feeling kind of spiritually zombified. You want to receive the Holy Spirit. I would ask you... Um, to stand now, and I would like to say a prayer for you. Um, if you are still seated, perhaps you could, uh, not not with your not with a physical gesture, but just kind of. Uh, in your mind and heart, um, offer your support spiritually to the people who are standing nearby you. And I found this beautiful prayer that I'd like to pray over you this morning. God of all consolation and compassion, your son called Lazarus forth from the grave. Your breath alone brings life to dry bones and weary souls. Pour out your spirit upon these who stand before you, that they may face despair and death with the hope of resurrection, and faith in the one who fully and finally defeated death. Breathe your spirit into these collections of bones, regenerate them, animate them, bring them to true life. God, give them the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Give them the assurance of life and faith. We pray. Amen. Well, you can sit down. I often say this, and I feel like nobody ever takes me up on it. So let me just say it very sternly. If you just stood up, would you please talk to somebody about that? I, you can you can write it down and send it to me via an info card. You can email it to me. You can talk to a friend. You can find somebody who you don't know but looks vaguely friendly. <laughs> the physical thing is important. The sharing it with your mouth is also important. Please don't walk out of this, this building without talking to somebody about why you just stood up and what kind of happened in your heart when you did. Or at least writing it down and, and sending it. Because um, I would love to talk to you about it and pray for you about it. Well, now we have the great joy uh, of coming to the hope of Christ's table. In the midst of this dark season of reflecting on death and discipline and repentance, the table of the Lord remains open. All of you who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place are welcome to this table. You do not need to be a member of our church or of our denomination. You simply need to be a member of God's family. And the way you're a member of God's family is by saying to Jesus, I want to follow you with everything I have. I'm not good at it, but I am yours. If Jesus were here inviting you to this table and you would come and sit with him and take what he has to offer you, you can come to this table this morning. We're going to sing a couple of more songs together. Um, if you are following Jesus in this place this morning, come and receive. Take his body broken for you.
tear off a piece of that bread, dip it into the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We have wine and juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and your family. Uh, Receive that that food for your soul, that sustenance, that grace that Christ offers you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it is very much okay for you to be here. We are so happy that you are willing to spend a few minutes on your spiritual journey here with us. And uh, we wouldn't ask you to participate in this if it's not something that's meaningful to you. You can sit and think or pray, whatever you feel comfortable doing. Nobody will look funny at you. Um, All I ask usually is for people to respond to the Spirit's call on their life, whatever it might be. If you'd like to receive prayer, that'll happen up here. Um, But let's continue to worship God together this morning. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.